Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. My guest today is Brad Stone. Brad is a senior executive editor for global technology at Bloomberg News, where he covers high tech companies, startups, cybersecurity, and internet trends around the world. He's also the author of four books, including The Everything Store, Jeff Bezos in the Age of Amazon, which was the definitive work of Amazon's early years. Uh, the book was a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller and won the 2013 FT Goldman Sachs Business Book of the Year Award. I last spoke with Brad after the publication of his book, The Upstarts, Uber, Airbnb, and the Battle for the New Silicon Valley. His latest book is Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. It especially emphasizes the company's growth in the eight years since he covered the company last in depth and Jeff Bezos' rise to become the wealthiest man in the world. Brad, welcome back to Technovation. It's great to speak with you. Thank you, Peter. But first, a word from our sponsor, QuickBase, and the company's chief executive officer, Ed Jennings. QuickBase is a low-code application development platform focused on citizen automation, and Ed wanted to share how the company helps organizations democratize automation. Ed, over to you. At QuickBase, our mission is to unlock the potential of organizations to adapt and innovate at speed. We do this by empowering business technologists within organizations to leverage low-code, no-code, to visually build their own applications, click and drag integrate across their existing systems, and eliminate manual and clumsy processes by writing their own workflow automations. As we see more technology responsibilities shifting to the business, here are the top three ways that CIOs can unlock the potential of their own businesses to adapt and innovate faster. One, Empower a culture of innovation where every member of the team feels responsible for building and innovating digital solutions. Two, build a practice of citizen automation in your company, build out governance frameworks and communities of practice. And three, equip the team with the right citizen automation tools. My name is Ed Jennings and I'm the CEO of QuickBase. I look forward to sharing how we've helped over 5,000 enterprises mature their citizen automation programs. And now on to the interview. So, Brad, I, uh, a lot's happened since you last covered Amazon in in, in book length. Uh, when you last covered the company, it was valued at $120 billion. Uh, it employed less than 150,000 people. It's now worth north of one and a half billion, one and a half trillion, rather, excuse me, dollars. <laughs> exactly. And, exactly. <laughs> and uh, employs uh, over 1.3 million people. Uh, the period between the books has seen the expansion of the company's uh, AWS offering, the emergence of Alexa, Prime Video, the purchase of Whole Foods, the whole sweepstakes for HQ2, and so much more. Uh, just curious, I mean, everything I've just listed there, which are all things you cover in depth in your book, uh, uh, are, are a great reason to return to this topic. But I'm curious, uh, in your own words, sort of what, what, uh, what drew you back into Amazon after having covered it in such depth uh, back in 2013? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Peter. Well, it was, a, it was a sort of realization when I started this project in 2017 that my history was incomplete. That's that was the starting point. You know, I, I had written the Everything Store. It had it was standing the test of time as a kind of definitive history of the company. Uh, it, it, but increasingly, it felt like the Old Testament in a way. And it was of all the things you mentioned, the new initiatives like Alexa, the Go Store, just the pure expansion of the business. 
But the, there was also a sense that the Bezos who was in the everything store was not the same guy, you know, that it, not, he hadn't just visibly transformed and become the, you know, the action like uh, action hero like figure that uh, was depicted in the Sun Valley photographs and turned into memes, but that he was no longer the kind of singularly obsessed technologist from Seattle, but was really more of a figure on the world stage. He was fighting with Donald Trump. Um, and, and this was in 2017. So I started this book before HQ2 and before his battle with the National Enquirer. And all those things kind of deepen the narrative of Bezos becoming a larger than life, a controversial figure, and in some ways moving away from Amazon and, and embracing a larger world. Very interesting. And I know the title of the book comes from a quote from an employee who worked on the Alexa project who said that, quote, Jeff just wanted us to be unbounded. No, that's um, funny because you know what? It didn't come from that. Although oh. when she when she said that, I thought, "Oh, it's amazing." She just used my title. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, Forgive me. And, no, no, it was interesting. I mean, in and and the way in which this was a marketing vice president on Alexa, and she was saying that you know Bezos wanted to wanted them to like discard um, expectations around who they could hire how much they could spend and really to just become more and more ambitious. And that was a theme that was throughout the, throughout the book. Other teams told me that as well. I originally thought about Unbounded. First of all, I liked the pun that this was no longer a books company, uh, but also Unbounded in, in like, it was sort of defying the laws of corporate gravity, right? Usually the larger you are, the slower you move, the less innovative you become. And when I started this project and was looking at just the, like the Amazon retail numbers and the cloud numbers, they, they were growing faster as they got bigger. And, and that just defies the law of large numbers. So, so Unbounded actually takes on a couple of different meanings throughout this book. Interesting. Well, so I, that's a uh, avenue I wanted to go down with you. In fact, was this this uh, the, the fact that the organization, even as it's become one of the largest on earth, hasn't lost its entrepreneurial spirit, still has this extraordinary innovation capacity despite its enormous size. Talk a bit about some of the factors that you've uncovered or determined are the 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 keys to its continued success, despite being long since uh, of a size when organizations oftentimes lose that edge. Yeah, I, I think we can sort of wax poetically about the culture at Amazon or decentralization, um, how they how they organize the company, the fact that it's the land of a thousand CEOs. But by and large, I think the answer to this question is sort of simple. <laughs> it's that Bezos is an idea machine and he sits at the hot center of invention at the company. And he's he has used the magic uh, of inspiration and intimidation of the founder to get the company to do hard things. And I think actually that is really the so part of the story I'm telling in this book. And it's part of the big challenge that Amazon faces because he's, he's gradually moving away. And so can they continue to be inventive? I mean, I do think the other stuff is true. Like, you know, they tend to run really decentralized. They have things they, they call their, their like project leaders, single threaded leaders, because they're really, they're given responsibility for like one task, even sometimes one feature on a product, and then total autonomy to go to do that. Um, they, the goals are pushed down into the organization, metrics and performance results are pushed up, but by and large, there's a lot of decentralization among a lot of these very small teams. But, you know, to me, it's like, I, I think I wrote this in the Everything Store. Amazon is scaffolding built around Jeff Bezos's brain, and that's really, to me, the key to the inventiveness. Like things like Alexa, even Prime Day, 
don't happen unless Bezos, unless unless the rumor is spread throughout the organization, this is a Jeff project. And then all the ants scurry and to get things done, and they push through bureaucratic hurdles because the found the you know the founder who's been right so many times is behind it. And it'll be interesting to see does that continue? Uh, is the response the same if a project is an Andy project? Well, we'll have to see. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, Bezos, uh, as you've now in two different books uh, noted, you know, he is brilliant. He's also rather mercurial at times. He, he's, he's a difficult boss. Those projects, as you note, that he's most involved in, the people who are uh, running those projects oftentimes go through a lot a lot more pain than, than, than other project managers would as a result of his, his scrutiny. Uh, and he doesn't suffer fools gladly. Uh, but as you point out, he's also right quite often, and he's a guy who can swing around corners in ways that others can't. I mean, it's a, a little like Steve Jobs in a similar vein, a, another legendary, brilliant mind who is also a very, very tough boss. There's also an interesting parallel in as much as you know the the passing the baton to uh, to, to to a successor at Apple. Many people thought that that was going to lead to the downfall of the organization. Uh, people likewise are wondering whether or not Andy Jassy, for all of his differences, also a, you know, a, a guy who likes to get into the weeds, but also right. a guy who's a bit more collegial um, by reputation than, than is Bezos. Uh, any thoughts as somebody who's gotten to know both Bezos as well as Jassy uh, as to what that handoff might look like? I, I think the answer is an unexciting one, Peter. It's, it's it, not a lot changes. And, you know, go back to when I, I first saw the news, I guess it was in, was it January or February that Bezos was resigning as CEO and I was finishing Amazon Unbound and I was panicked. Do I need to add another chapter to this book? Do I need to rewrite part of the book? And I thought, you know, and then I realized, you know what, I'm, I've been telling the story throughout already of Bezos moving away from the company, getting involved or embroiled in so many different things from space travel to the Washington Post to political battles to his own personal journey um, and allowing deputies like Jassy and, and now Dave Clark before a guy named Jeff Wilkie to run the business somewhat autonomously um, without a lot of interference. You know, there were periods of time where Bezos was kind of hard to find at Amazon and canceling a lot of meetings. And so, you know, and now he's moving to executive chairman and he will remain, he says, involved in new projects and, and products. And that's kind of what's been happening. So I don't think the handover is, is all that significant. I think, you know, when Bezos shows up or gets interested in projects, he'll have a big in, input. But um, the big change is that Jassy moves from just running the fastest growing part of Amazon AWS to the, to the whole thing. Um, and that'll be interesting, right? And but you know, it's not like he's a foreigner to those parts of the company. He's been a, on the S team and a loud voice on the on the S team, the senior leadership team, for you know probably I think about two decades. So um, that's the big transition: him becoming really the leader of the company and then the public figurehead. And that'll be an interesting change because when Bezos sits in that you know, witness seat in front of Congress. He's not just the CEO of Amazon, he's the wealthiest guy in the world and, and brings along with him a lot of the baggage uh, from being so wealthy and so prominent. And Jassy, I think, will present a little bit of a humbler, more down-to-earth uh, vision or picture of Amazon. And again, like the 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 relationship to Tim Cook is, is there as well, right? Everything you've just described or much of what you've just described um, totally. It's a really interesting. Yeah, it's like on the on the Balmer 
to cook spectrum. You know, Steve Ballmer being maybe not historically seen as a, a successful successor to Bill Gates, and then Tim Cook being historically successful. Where will Andy Jassy fall? And I, 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 you know, he'll be effective. And part of the reason is because he has there's so much built up momentum behind Amazon right now. It's never been more successful. Fulfillment centers closer to 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 customers. Um, you know. In, in, in two businesses, e-commerce and cloud computing that are growing very fast on their own, um, you know, and then, and then um, unlike Tim Cook, he still has the inventor in chief who's going to hang around. So I think he's probably set up to be quite successful. Though you also talk about uh, the fact that it is such a complex organization that there aren't a lot of people that understand how it all fits together like Bezos does. Uh, Jassy, of course, was ran for, has run rather for quite some time, the B2B part of the organization in Amazon Web Services, AWS. Uh, not to say, of course, as you point out, he's on the senior leadership team and as, as such uh, is in regular dialogue with his peers on the on the B2C side of, side of the house. But you point out that for a long time, as the organization grew and grew in such diverse directions, the one person who kind of understood how it all fit together, understood how this flywheel built its momentum and so on, you know, was Bezos himself. And it sounds like from what you're saying, you believe that, uh, you know, this is rubbing off on Jassy or he wouldn't be, uh, you know, handing over the reins to him. But, but it's an interesting, interesting conundrum in as much as it is an extraordinarily complex organization. It is, it is. But that leadership, you look at that leadership team. I mean, Jassy's not going to be required to run, say, Prime Video on a day-to-day basis or uh, Amazon Logistics, the transportation and fulfillment arm, or even AWS anymore. Because the way that that company is set up, it's it's a little bit like a conglomerate, uh, you know, this aggregation of diverse businesses, each with their independent CEO. And so like Jeff Blackburn, longtime Amazon executive who had basically retired and had gone to work for a venture capital company, venture capital firm, and he lasted all of about two weeks. And then Amazon brought him back and now he's running Prime Video. So, you know, Chassis's got a lot of capable deputies, um, you know, and, and so, and then he's also got an executive chairman who's the founder of the company. So, Sure, there's pressure on him, and he'll be the face of the company, and he's going to hopefully, I think, set a new tone on the culture. Um, but it, it's not like it will be totally reliant on him to run all these different um, pieces of the company. That's not how Amazon's set up. It, it Just like Bezos let the big parts of the company run with a lot of autonomy, I think Jassy will do that too. And I mean, he joins, uh, on the one hand, he joins the company at a time when it is as successful as it has ever been. I certainly want to talk to you about the tailwinds that were created. You meant you talked at, at, at some length about uh, the pandemic and the the even greater levels of success that that, that led to for Amazon. Uh, I'd love to talk, cover that with you in a moment. But he also, of course, uh, will take on that role at a time that's somewhat fraught in as much as there is increasing government scrutiny uh, and even got potential government action uh, to to split up the organization or at least provide some of that justification. Uh, talk to talk about you know your own perspectives on where things stand from that perspective, uh, and you know sort of some of the things that the Biden some of the moves uh, it appears as though the Biden administration might take that that might might put the organization you know it, at least to some some extent into peril. I mean, totally, no doubt. It's it's an inevitability, right? The the one thing that um, 
Democrats and Republicans in Washington, D.C. seem to agree on now is that uh, antitrust law should be reshaped and that big tech companies should be curtailed. Um, you know, I think they face inevitably a case from the FTC and some of these bills that are being kind of adjudicated in, in the House and eventually in the Senate will will impact Amazon. So the road ahead is rough, but I will, I'm going to predict, Peter, that you know, not as rough as people think, and that the prospects of splitting up Amazon or curtailing it in any significant way are actually probably low. And I say that because I, uh, some, you know, we're we're talking in a week where earlier in the week a judge overthrew the FTC's case against Facebook, and one of the reasons that it did was they said that the FTC had 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 been too vague when it came to market definition. You know, they were raising the prospect that Facebook was a monopoly in US social networking. Well, the judge reasonably asked, what what does that mean? Is it a monopoly if it has very strong competitors for people's time like TikTok and YouTube? And 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 so for Amazon, I think it's the same thing. It's it's very hard to make an argument that Amazon is a monopoly when there's very strong competition only a click away, or even to just walk into stores. I mean, e-commerce is still, I think, less than half of all the retail, um, significantly less. And Amazon has about 40% of e-commerce. And, you know, so we are talking about these very large markets where there's lots of competition. So, look, I think there's plenty of ways in which Amazon's conduct um, can be evaluated where they might have to change some things. For example, forcing um, retailers to give uh, Amazon the lowest price, you know, that's called a kind of most favored nation clause. The attorney general in Washington, D.C. is sued over that. And these are things at the margins, and I think we'll see Amazon change its behavior. But a kind of existential antitrust case, well, I mean, first of all, those take years to proceed. And second of all, making the monopoly argument when you have a, a you, at a time where you seem to have a judiciary that's maybe a little bit opposed to uh, regulators redefining how antitrust law is, um, is, is uh, enforced. I think, I think, I think Amazon, it's going to be a rough road, but I think they get through it. Interesting. In the book, you interview Megan Wolf, the product manager who launched Prime Day, the sort of Christmas and June event back in 2015, which continues to, to this day. Uh, you note that she asked herself, quote, was the overall impact of Amazon's customer recession on local businesses, the climate, and warehouse workers worth it? And she she concluded uh, the answer was a definitive no. She, she canceled her Prime membership. Um, she recycled her Amazon Echoes, closed her Amazon account. Um, curious, you know, you had a chance to interview a great number of people, uh, you know, existing executives, uh, employees, people that have left the organization who were, who were of great influence in the, in the company who've drawn conclusions comparable to Megan Wolf. You know, where, where do you stand just on kind of where the organization is in terms of the benefits to society versus, yeah. uh, some of the downsides? Oh boy, it's the big question, right? And it's one that I kind of try to answer at the end. I mean, first of all, there are, you talk to enough Amazon employees and you find conscientious objectors like, like Megan Wolf, who, you know, believe for a time and then, and then kind of sour on the, you know, the, in, the internal experience, um, the way they treat their employees, and then ultimately the consumerism that Amazon is creating. And, you know, and she actually resigned at a point where, I think that she had, you know, she had seen some of Bezos's the changes in his personal life and felt like, um, you know, that wasn't someone that she wanted to work for anymore. 
But the big question, and so like, I mean, part of the way in which I answer or I try to answer the, the, the big question, is Amazon good for the world, is, you know, supplying an extremely wide variety of opinions about this complex topic from a diverse array of people inside and outside the company and letting the reader judge for themselves. It's in, in some ways, I think it's an impossible question to ask. And the way I end the book and up to you, if you think it's a cop-out or not, is I mean, Amazon just is, right? It's not going away. Um, it's um, it's it's part of our world. If it hadn't done brought some of the things like e-commerce and you know voice speakers into our world, then other companies probably would have. And you know, it's up to us to kind of decide how we use those things. But personally, I'm an Amazon Prime member, and I own a couple of Alexas, and I'll probably use a ton of services that rely on AWS. So, um, I guess that tells you a little bit about where where I come from, I mean, I think it's like personally probably added, it's unlike a lot of other internet services, it feels like it's brought more convenience into my world. Um, it gives me back time as opposed to kind of taking it away and mindless scrolling. So, um, but, but, you know, it's also a critical book that I've written. So there are many ways in which the company can probably do better for its employees and its customers and society. Fair enough. Um, you also, as I mentioned earlier, you write in the late in the book um, about the pandemic and the the fact that it led to all sorts of opportunities for the organization. In many ways, it was really built for what we all uh, went through over the course of the past eighteen months or so. Um, talk talk a bit about you know what what the, the what Amazon has accomplished in the past uh, past eighteen months as a result of of this sort of black swan event and the the extent to which this sort of uh, created, you know, built strength upon strength. Yeah, it's really, it's almost perverse um, in that a company that had all the advantages of capital and technical talent um, going in, uh, you know, went through a period where um, suddenly they had you know, even even more advantages, right? All their competition was almost not a business and people were scared of going into stores. And I mean, the numbers just tell the story. I think Amazon hired, God, it was more than I think maybe half a million people just in, you know, during the pandemic alone. And it just shows, you know, how much extraordinary demand there was for, for their services. They have raised more money on the bond market. They've been building fulfillment centers and data centers at a furious pace. And I think that, you know, there was one result of the pandemic, not only did, did Amazon sort of win, but it's, it's led to more Amazon, right? This is a company that continually invests in, um, you know, more, more resources. So, and that's going to translate into faster delivery and more selection and, you know, more data centers to host more third-party websites. So, um, it's all, it was also a moment to reckoning for the company, right? Because um, so so much of the uh, reports coming from employees during the pandemic were negative. So I think it's it's been a remarkably productive time for Amazon in all ways other than its public image, which I think has ironically kind of suffered. You mentioned briefly there the technical talent. I mean, it is extraordinary the stable of phenomenal talent that they they have uh, been able to acquire. They also, as you, as you uh, provide significant detail in the book about the contest for the second headquarters, which was you know quite an undertaking. Many cities, of course, applied for this. They had the kind of multiple rounds of it. The two cities that won, uh, the one city that didn't want to win <laughs> at the end of the day, re- rejected the designation in Long Island City uh, outside of New York. Uh, to talk a bit about 
an organization like this is really as good as the talent that it can acquire, given the sanctity of, of the software that it develops and the need to, uh, you know, the race for artificial intelligence and machine learning that are at the core of so much of what it does as well. You know, at, as it becomes larger and larger, again, most organizations become less attractive. You think about Microsoft and the fact that for a long time, it was the the destination for great technology talent for a long period of time. And then all of it sort of lost its edge. I mean, there's a remarkable story of its rebirth, of course, uh, in recent years as well. But Amazon continues to suck up tremendous talent, uh, even as it becomes larger. Uh, and again, adds to its advantage along the way at a time when many, most organizations, you know, most people would choose to go to Amazon and might otherwise be looking for the, you know, the pre-IPO company, the the venture-backed unicorn that that some big, you know, enormous financial event might might benefit them and so on. Um, you know, what are your insights about Amazon's ability to continue to add to its tremendous stable of tech talent? Right. Well, I think that's a challenge for for any company. Um, Amazon, particularly now at a time of so much competition and low unemployment, um, Amazon actually may, maybe has a little bit of a tougher road because of the way in which it distributes equity to new employees. It you know it's very it's very much backloaded in these four year cycles to get people to kind of dig in. Um, Bezos always worried about making people extremely wealthy and having them stop work. So, you know, you tend to like, if you, if you strike gold in your, in your, uh, equity grants for four years, you might get a lower, uh, allotment the next time. And, and that actually maybe makes other companies or startups a little bit brighter for prospects for ambitious uh, people, technical people. Um, but you know, you look at the past 10 years of stock growth at, at Amazon, and it's been extraordinary. So, right, they do have, you know, they, they do have um, a record. Um, they have, they have a, you know, a history of working on big things. And yeah, the te- technical talent tends to draw other technical talent. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a mix. And I, but it's one of the reasons why I would say like a stagnating stock price for a prolonged, a prolonged stagnating stock price might be one of the biggest dangers to Andy Jassy because it, you know, it, it might, um, it might motivate some of the other senior technical leaders to depart the company. And that's actually been happening. Right. And so um, I think that's, um, you know, that's a challenge. That's going to be a challenge for them for sure. Uh, I want to also ask you a bit about the, the, prominent acquisitions the organization's made, Whole Foods being a, a, a very significant one. And then right. just oh, in, yeah. and I was going to say in May, May of May of this year, MGM uh, as well. Uh, talk a bit about its foray into a couple of different, uh, both of those, of course, categories where they already had businesses, but really significant investments that, that kind of blow those out further in some really interesting directions. Um, you know, what are your what are your thoughts about uh, Amazon's track record in terms of acquisitions, as well as looking forward uh, to to the, the the rationale and justification of of acquiring MGM? Right. Well, it's inter- I mean, it's interesting. There have been kind of two buckets of of acquisitions in Amazon history, and one is the company that they've they'll buy companies for maybe some competitive reasons and then allow them to be run independently and not much happens there. And, you know, examples are Zappos, you know, the, the shoe store, um, Quizzy, which owned diapers.com and some other consumables brands, um, Goodreads way back in the day, like they'll, they'll buy properties in that and then not do much for them, or they buy them to learn from them. 
Um, and then they do their own thing. And I would put actually Whole Foods into that category, right? They haven't done much with it. Um, maybe some stuff on the back end. Um, and now they're opening Amazon Fresh supermarkets. And then there's another category of acquisition where they really do integrate uh, the technology Kiva with the, the warehouse robots um, being being like a prime example, um, Ring, uh, the doorbell, connected doorbell company, which is, you know, those products now sit alongside Alexa products and their home networking push. And I would say MGM is, you know, is, a, is, is going to be in the second category if they get it cleared past the FTC, which I actually think they will. But um, basically bringing in all that intellectual property into the prime video ecosystem and then developing new shows and movies based on the big franchises like the James Bond movies you know, to help Amazon compete with the likes of Disney Plus and Netflix and, and Apple. But looking forward, I think, you know, it's, I think we have to conclude that maybe the big acquisitions are over, but there's just simply too much antitrust and regulatory pressure on Amazon for it to go and make significant deals. You also cover, uh, and you've so, you're somebody who has studied uh, Bezos himself and spent time with Bezos. Um, though, as I understand, not not on this book project, but but you did get a, get time with him uh, as you began your last one. Um, you talk about how this legendarily controlled leader lost control a bit, perhaps most prominently in his personal life, given some of the lurid details of his affair that broke up his marriage. Kind of, it was kind of like a midlife crisis on steroids. Um, uh, talk a bit about what insights you have there in terms of this, this guy, this sort of nerdy founder with the big laugh who became this hulking figure, uh, you know, uh, sort of remade himself in, in, in a variety of ways uh, as he reached his, his, his midlife period and now has gone off in some, some sort of in interesting directions, very different from where he once was. <laughs> right. Well said, Peter. Let, let me see if I can dance around it as, uh, ad adeptly. Um, you know, it's, he, he, one word he uses a lot is adventure. Um, another word he uses a lot is stasis. He, he, he's always concerned about Amazon um, being, you know, being uh, any company or Amazon being uh, um, stuck. Um, and stopping to innovate and change and do new things. And his personal life, he was all, he he always talked about adventure. Um, when he when he toasts uh, with with friends or coworkers, he'll often say, to, "I think it's something like the, to adventure and fellowship." And and so you put those two together, and, and I think his business philosophy is probably not too dissimilar from his personal philosophy, which is like if we don't start stop growing, if we don't stop having new experiences, if we allow ourselves to stand still and be captured by stasis, then you know then then we're going to be less effective and we'll lead less interesting lives or have less effective businesses. The the last shareholder letter that he wrote really captures this sentiment. Um, it, I wish I had it in front of me, but it, it talks about kind of stasis being like a powerful universal force. And so I think, you know, and, and I was working on this book when the whole National Enquirer thing happened. And eventually I kind of saw it in those terms, right, that, you know, like maybe somewhat naturally, somewhat humanly, um, he, he went in search of kind of new experiences and new adventures. And the, the ironic thing is it kind of got him into trouble with uh, a tabloid newspaper who, to her, his perhaps naive surprise, was more interested in, in chronicling the personal life of the wealthiest person in the world than he expected. But the way in which he fought them and kind of got out with his image intact was extraordinary. And as I said, I was I was writing the book as as this all happened. And so chronicling, taking a business story and moving into the realm of the National Enquirer, the Saudis, intimate leaked photographs, it was all really somewhat bizarre. 
I, I mentioned that last time you actually got an audience with uh, with Bezos. You actually prepared one of the sort of multi-page Word documents for him to read to to uh, to learn more about right, what, you were, what right. you, were pro- you were proposing to do. Uh, he gave you access to his family, to friends, to many leaders uh, 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 leaders across the organization. You also had some very prominent people, including his now ex-wife, but then wife, uh, who gave you one-star reviews on Amazon right. about the book. Yeah, um, exactly. I, I'm curious, you know, as you as you delve back into this, recognizing, I mean, granted, the, the book went on to be not only a great success, but also uh, uh, gain tremendous critical acclaim, as I alluded to in, in the introduction. Uh, but but uh, w- were you daunted at all that you would have less access uh, this time around, as a result of the fact that, of course, that the, that the first book was no puff piece, it uh, you know the, it right. was sort of a warts and all account, as as this this book has turned out to be as well. But as you contemplated delving back into this, was there was it intimidating to know that uh, perhaps there might be some people who'd be less cooperative the second time around? It's actually it was Peter. It was the opposite. Um, I had more more authorized access and more unauthorized access this time around. You know, the, on the on the first book, I, I had met with Bezos and I talked to. I, he was doing more stuff with the press on a regular basis, but he, you know, he was never going to be the kind of person who sat back and reflected about what he was thinking at this moment or that moment. Um, and then, as you as you reference, he didn't enjoy the first book and and was uh, see, appeared to be upset with me for some element of my of my portrayal. And so this time around, he didn't he didn't talk to me. But again, it wasn't. You know, I wasn't losing anything because he's not really that transparent with his insight. And, he, you know, he makes public appearances and speaks very well. But Amazon did allow me to talk to probably about two dozen current executives and authorize some conversations with former executives and also Bezos' personal friends. And then I also went to hundreds and hundreds of current and former executives myself. And I had the calling card of my first book, and they sort of knew I was writing the the definitive history here. So in some ways, um, I felt like I had an embarrassment of riches uh, from this book, not just internal accounts, but external. And, you know, the fact is that one day Bezos might write a memoir or talk to another writer. I have a feeling it won't be me, um, but I'll hold out some hope. But until that moment, it's like he's, you know, he's just not, he, he's looking ahead. He's going to space, right? He's, he's, he's trying to solve climate change with this personal philanthropy. I, he, I've never seen him really sit down and, and uh, you know, kind of kind of give his memoirs um, as Steve Jobs was really unfortunately forced to do at the end of his life. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Uh, well, I realize that this, this book is, is, uh, is is a recent uh, publication, needless to say. But uh, you know, what what are you what are you thinking about next? What what are some of the topics that you're delving into? Obviously, you're somebody in your day job uh, at Bloomberg uh, is is regularly in touch with people who are shaping the technology landscape. You have you know reason to contemplate the tremendous shifts uh, across Silicon Valley and technology more generally speaking. As somebody who's covered covered that for uh, nearly a quarter century, um, you know what, what's what's of interest these days. I'm, I'm, I'm for the foreseeable future. It feels like I'm talking and writing and thinking about Amazon still, just because, you know, it's like the the book came out in May and then, you know, he's, he, um, he transitions out, uh, uh, out of being CEO. He goes to space. 
uh, Andy Jassy takes over. They add two new leadership principles to their to the 14 sacrosanct uh, company values, and it's like it's an endless stream of of things coming from probably now the most interesting company of the, of the world in the world, and um, and the focus is sort of never ending. And so I do look forward to the day where I I can, you know, stop thinking about. Jeff Bezos for <laughs> one day and think about what's next. But it doesn't seem like at least for the next couple of weeks or maybe this summer that uh, time is is coming. So I, I'll let you know. I mean, I, I'm, I would love to yeah, move on and figure out what the next project is. I just don't know yet. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. Well, Brad, uh, Brad Stone, thank you so much for joining me on Technovation again. Congratulations on your new, new book, Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. Um, as always, it's so nice to speak with you. Peter, great to talk to you again.